Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. <laughs> Toxicology, astro seismology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically engineered potatoes, planetoid, planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the influence of social experiences on the regulation of the expression of your genes. But first up, here's the news. Walk and chew gum at the same time? A study from Duke University suggests that the exercise of willpower and the act of recording in memory use the same brain structures and therefore compete for resources. The better you perform at self-control, the worse you perform on remembering later. In this study, volunteers who categorised images and pushed a button, or held back from pushing a button, depending on the type of image, performed worse on a surprise test of recognising which images they'd been looking at. Nobody likes surprise tests. The researchers asked volunteers to look at a series of photos of people's faces, without mentioning anything about memorising them, and then later tested how well they remembered which faces they'd seen. When they were also asked to perform a self-control exercise while looking at the faces, the volunteers performed worse on recalling which pictures they'd seen. The experiment was replicated in a new study with new volunteers who this time lay in a functional magnetic resonance imager, fMRI, so that the blood flow could be monitored. Currently, measuring brain blood flow to show oxygen uptake is our best clue to which parts of the brain are used when performing different tasks. The self-control test used what's known as a traditional go-no-go task. These tasks work by asking participants to view a series of items and push a button only when certain criteria are met. For this experiment, when the face shown is male rather than female, they must push a button. The theory is that people who are able to hold back from a button push when necessary are those with the strongest self-control, or response inhibition, as the neuroscientists call it. The participants were not told that they would need to remember the faces they were shown, so their attention was on the button pushing, not memorising the faces. The blood flow imaging from the fMRI showed that the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex in the volunteers' brains was activated frequently during the self-control test and predicted the strength of the volunteers' memory later on. The researchers' theory is that self-control and memory use the same resources, so that the more self-control you exert, the less you remember. 
they found that more blood flowed to these areas when the person had to refrain from hitting the button than when it was time to hit the button. The effort was in holding themselves back. Hence, response inhibition. Or, in the researcher's own words in the Journal of Neuroscience, the control demands of response inhibition divert attention away from stimulus encoding, thereby weakening memory traces for inhibitory cues. These findings shed new light on the relation between the control processes of response inhibition and the cognitive domains of perception, attention and memory. The inhibition-induced forgetting hypothesis suggests that active self-control uses up resources that would otherwise go towards encoding memories. Which reminds me of the classic psychology experiment where counting how many times a basketball is passed between players can stop you noticing a woman in a gorilla suit, blatantly in the middle of the court. I'm not completely convinced that their conclusions are correct. Is it just facial memory that's affected, which we know has its own neural structures separate to the rest of our memory? Or is it just multitasking that caused the effect? The fact that people use their brain for two simultaneous tasks? Or is it similar to the basketball in the gorilla suit that the volunteers were just paying close attention to whether or not a face was male or female, so they missed the other details? The researchers suggest a thought experiment, where you're about to change lanes in your car, and you see that a car has already grabbed the parking spot you wanted. So you stop changing lanes and keep going. Under such circumstances, they speculate, you'd be less likely to recall details about that car than if you hadn't had to inhibit your intention to change lanes. The first study was titled Inhibition-Induced Forgetting, When More Control Leads to Less Memory, and was published in the journal Psychological Science. The second study, with the fMRI scans, was titled Inhibition-induced forgetting results from resource competition between response inhibition and memory encoding processes and was published in the Journal of Neuroscience. An interesting implication of this study is that it directly implies that self-control is a limited resource that you can run out of. This directly contradicts a 2013 study from Stanford University and the University of Zurich that showed that self-control was unlimited until you'd been told it was a limited resource. There was a nocebo, or negative placebo effect, when people had less control when they were led to believe they would run out of self-control, and a placebo effect where people had no limits if they were told there were no limits. The point of the 2013 study was to test the hypothesis, widely believed in neuroscience just a few years ago, that exercising willpower used up glucose in the brain so that you'd run out. This contradicting study was titled Belief About Willpower Determines the Impact of Glucose on Self-Control and was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. So, perhaps the researchers should have controlled for the beliefs of the volunteers before they tested their willpower and the effect on surprise memory tests. A woman in a gorilla suit mightn't have hurt.
listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. First, there was genomics, telling us that the genes we inherit shape our body. Then came epigenetics, showing that the environment and experiences of our grandparents and parents could add markers that influence the regulation of the genes we inherit and change our bodies. Now there's human metagenomics. Steve Cole is a professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's a genomics researcher who studies how everyday life influences what our genes do in our bodies. I began by asking him, what are human metagenomics? So metagenomics is really, historically, an analysis of found populations of organisms. So a a metagenome might be a collection of genomes recovered from bacteria in our guts, or a whole population of wallabies from a forest, or a big hunk of biomass recovered from some surgical tissue. Metagenomics has not so far been applied to networks of human beings, but it's all the technology we need to do that uh, is here. And it's really just a matter of some industrious researcher somewhere getting up the gumption to go out and grab a whole lot of people and relate what genomes are doing within an individual to the relationships among individuals and the emergent social and cultural processes that sew them together, that make them a meta-organism. The same way each of us as individuals is something more than we would be if we were birthed alone and grew up alone. The world around us adds greatly. It enriches what we as individuals develop into and metagenomics in some sense, would be the molecular layer of that particular phenomena. So that's in addition to genetics and epigenetics? Correct. It's, if you will, you can think of it as the magic in genetics, the way in which our 20,000 genes are probably doing more because of our inherently social nature than would be the 20,000 genes of a plant. In fact, by genetic standards, humans are comparatively simple creatures. We have about two-thirds as many genes as a representative model plant. So often people have scratched their heads a bit and said, well, if it's really all in the genome, how do you get such tremendous mental capacity, physical capacity, adaptive capacity, creative capacity, all the things that are distinctive and, and remarkable in human life? How do you get that from, you know, two-thirds as many genes as a weed? And the answer seems to be the distinctive sort of uh, what you would call regulatory complexity, the way in which our genes work together in ways that don't for plants. The bets that we have made in our evolutionary history on what you can think of as generic learning machines. So our genome encodes a relatively large amount of complex perceptual and computational characteristics. And that stuff without some structured input from the environment is pretty useless. So it it appears at this point as though we have actually evolved and most other social species have evolved 
counting on others to be there to help teach us things, to help take the basic operating system we have and layer in new programs of functionality the same way we would go off and buy a piece of software. Culture delivers frameworks and information to our genome. And our genome it appears to have evolved to take advantage of that, not only to invite sociality, but to, in some sense, bet on its availability and leverage it in ways that other organisms do not. So we can actually run a somewhat smaller genome to much greater effect because we are counting on our environments to supply us with input and resources that other organisms are not. And so our social experiences can literally inform our cellular processes. That's, abs that's absolutely right. So what we understand right now about how that happens is probably best established in the context of disease. So we know that health and disease are socially structured, that there are social gradients in vulnerability to illness just about every sort, but especially the chronic illnesses that are the major killers of, of modern human beings, you know, sort of heart attacks and metastatic cancer and neurodegenerative diseases. So what we've learned about the basic biology of those diseases is that they share in common certain fundamental sort of, if you will, ingredients. They're not identical diseases, but there's some some common features involving inflammation from the immune system as sort of a major ingredient in the recipe for creating each of these diseases. And the immune system it happens to be a particularly useful model for working out how the social world regulates a genome in general because it's easy to get immune cells out of people. You stick a needle in their vein, you pull out some white blood cells, those are the major mediators of the immune response. So what we've discovered using that kind of a model system is that there are these systematic changes in the way our genomes are functioning as a function of these social stratifications relating to economics and, and social value and social connectedness that would appear to explain pretty well why we get these differences in, in downstream disease risk. And that ends up being a story about how this prodigious capacity we have for creating culture that then modulates what our genome does, this great gift or advantage I just described earlier, has the, this sort of this unintended consequence of leaving us highly dependent on our social contexts. And when they're not optimal, we end up functioning less than ideally and, and more vulnerable to disease. What we see in the context of the immune system is a story in which we as organisms have, it, it appears, at least two basic modes of everyday existence, at least at the, the level of gene expression. One mode you can think of as our, our default, healthy, happy, open-minded, creative, generative, biological mode in which we're, we're basically optimized for managing the kinds of insults and opportunities that come with sociality. And there's another more emergency or defensive mode that gets turned on. Historically, it appears to, to be there because once upon a time when we felt threatened or uncertain, the likelihood that we would be injured was high. You know, it, it appears that in the under ancestral conditions, we spent most of our time relatively unstressed, believe it or not. 
And so when you had extended periods of threat or uncertainty or stress, that was probably because your tribe was being chased by the tribe next door or there were predators after you on a long-term basis or there was no food now for two or three months in a row. And so it made good sense to brace for injury. And so we appear to have evolved this reflex that says when you feel threatened or uncertain for long periods of time, drop the kinds of everyday default molecular lifestyle you lead and brace yourself for disaster. Get ready for injury. Get ready in particular for wounds, for damaged tissue, for bleeding. Get ready for the infections that travel with that kind of thing. So we've acquired over hundreds of thousands, millions really, of years of, of evolution of basic reflex that says, if you feel threat, activate inflammation. What we've done in our culture these days is engineer lifestyles where we often feel threatened by circumstances that are unlikely to actually physically injure us. So we're running these defensive programs uh, in situations where they're not actually buying us much in terms of self-protection. And these defensive programs are costly. They don't come for free. They inadvertently promote the development of atherosclerosis, neurodegenerative diseases, metastatic cancer. And so these gradients we see in social disease risk appear to be coming from, at least in part, this chronic activation of a biological defense regime that isn't helping us any, but is kind of mortgaging our future by producing inflammation that precipitates or accelerates these disease processes. So if you've been affected either by isolation or threat or, or bullying or, or something really nasty happening or just being ground down and feeling awful and your body has got into this state, can it get stuck in that state? It can uh, quite, quite easily, but it's unlikely to be permanently stuck there in ways that we cannot do anything about. So the stuckness comes to some extent from the kinetics of gene expression and the persistence of a given change in the activity of our genome. When a genome alters its activity, it ends up producing more or less of certain proteins, and those proteins hang around for weeks, months, sometimes years at a time. The cells that they comprise also persist for long periods of time. So experiences that I have today will certainly be influencing the cellular and molecular aspects of my being for some time into the future. But as we learn more about the regulatory architecture of the genome, it's becoming increasingly clear that the system is very plastic and attentive to our environments. And so when our environments change, after enough period of time, our genomes will change their activity to adapt to the new circumstances. So if we can change our environments, ultimately there's probably pretty good molecular resilience. The catch in that relatively optimistic proposition is the fact that much of what drives our contemporary defensive biological programming are experiences we have of the world that we, in some sense, construct from reality. We interpret what happens to us. It's not literally the object in the world that is typically the trigger for changes in gene expression. It's our sense that this means 
that the life is fundamentally unpredictable or humans are generally untrustworthy or things will never go well for me. So it's that mindset, that view of the world that seems to be a major proximal determinant of these adverse gene expression profiles. So the challenge is not just changing environments, but also changing people's experience of environments, the worldviews we all develop, the theories of life and social circumstances that end up contributing to these dynamics. That was genomics researcher Professor Steve Cole explaining the problem of the social influence on the regulation of human gene expression and how it causes a lot of inflammatory disease. Listen next week for part two, where he explains the solutions. And from the Mini Maker Fair, we have life-sized 3D robotic Pac-Man. Chris is from the executive team of Create UNSW Student Society. I began by asking him about the giant real-life robotic Pac-Man game he had on display. It's something that we originally planned for Vivid. It was, well, planned for it, but we didn't end up showing. We just couldn't find a spot to put it in. But, well, it's here now. <laughs> You've got these little wheeled robots that represent, have on them the ghosts and Pac-Man, and they're in a well-lit sort of maze that they're moving around. So are they working off a program, or are they controlled by people who play the game? Well, Pac-Man is actually meant to be controlled by people playing the game. The ghosts are meant to run on AI, based on the original AI of the game. So each ghost has a different personality and will move differently. All of it is actually controlled via uh, a webcam. So it will take the um, locations of the, each character, broadcast it, as, and then the robots will make decisions on, based on their personality on where they will make, turn and chase Pac-Man or not. And how long did it take to put together? We actually only got given one month to put it together. Currently, it's still a work in progress because we haven't been able to get radio controlling them yet. So if they're not radio controlled, they're camera controlled? Um, they're currently running on random um, mode at the moment, so they're just moving in random directions. So they're not really playing the game? Not yet. <laughs> it's still going to take some time. And so what's the next project for you guys? Next project? Well, we've got the UAV Medical Express Challenge in 2016. That's going to be in Queensland. And then we're currently also working on the UGV, a manned ground vehicle, where we're trying to get a robot moving autonomously around UNSW campus. And so what's the medical one? UAV Medical Express Challenge. It's a competition run, well, normally it's run yearly, but they've skipped a year to renew the challenge and rewrite a new one, where you've got to take a hybrid, hybrid plane, it's like aerial vehicle, and fly to a given waypoint um, while flying at certain heights. You then have to land, pick up a blood sample, and get back to the starting point within a given time limit. And what sort of distance would they fly over? You get 60 minutes, so you would be flying, I think it was 20 to 30 kilometers round trip almost. UNSW Create, or Create UNSW rather, where would people find you online? We can be found at www.createunsw.com.au, I think. <laughs> no, it's on your t-shirt. Chris, it's on your t-shirt. <laughs> I'm reading yeah. it on your t-shirt, you're right. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Yeah.
You're welcome. That was Chris from Create UNSW, the Student Maker Society at the University of New South Wales. And now, put it to the test by They Might Be Giants. to the test by They Might Be Giants from their album Here Comes Science. You can buy They Might Be Giants music from www.theymightbegiants.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends and follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. 
knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. <laughs>